This morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me at the outset of this sermon, once again, to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 2. In our series of sermons on the providence of God, the focus of the last three sermons have been upon the special care of God's providence, which has to do with his church. And we began this part of our series by mentioning some of the common occasions of the church's fear, her humble condition, her apparent weakness, her formidable opposition, and her prolonged trials. And then after considering these things, we began to take up God's assurances to his fearful church. We noted what he says about his presence, about his help, and about his covenant. We return again to this theme of God's covenant this morning. And this is mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 2 in a remarkable way. Ephesians 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Well, in these verses, one of the descriptions of the Gentiles is that they were strangers from the covenants of promise. And it's significant here that covenants is in the plural, whereas promise is in the singular. There were various covenants that God made with his people, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. But a unifying thread runs through all of them, a promise that goes through from beginning to end of the Old Testament And this promise joins all the covenants together. It is the promise that God will save his people from their sins through a redeemer that he's going to send into the world. And we have this promise in mind when we speak of the covenant of grace. Before we return to this theme, once again, let's pray for the blessing and help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you have indeed given unto us a rich storehouse of promises and that all these promises are yea and amen in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be highly exalted in our midst today. We pray that we would worship him, that we would find refuge and comfort in him, that we would be strengthened by looking to him, that our faith would grow as it sees Jesus. Lord, we would see Jesus today. We pray that you would help us to see him we know we, we don't see him afresh unless your spirit comes. And therefore, bless his spirit, we pray that you would take of the things of Christ and show them to us. We pray this thing in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are a few things that bring disillusionment and cynicism in our hearts like broken promises. In the literary magazine, The Sun, and I don't know anything about this magazine besides the fact that it's about more of a literary type of a magazine. Carol Spear, she posted this brief essay concerning this common experience of broken promises. I was seven when my sitter's feisty dog chewed up my favorite doll. I waited for years for her to fulfill her promise of a new doll to replace it. About the same time the doll was destroyed, my mother promised that she would soon be able to give me an allowance of $5 a week. I was thrilled. 
But like the doll that never arrived, the extravagant allowance just became another wish that never came true. Fortunately, time put such small matters into perspective. And eventually I forgave my babysitter and I forgave my mother too. Still, there remain broken promises that touch a chord of sadness. And these are not the ones that others made, but that I made myself. Mostly unspoken, they were promises, nevertheless, to my parents, child, friends, first husband, second husband, my husband now, and me. Small promises for the most part, like the thank you notes I intended to write, the gifts I meant to give, the love I intended to show, the words I meant to say. I remember times I promised to be somewhere at a certain time or do a certain thing or call someone on a certain day. And I didn't. I think of the books on my shelves that were so long overdue that it only made sense to buy them from the library with the explanation that I had lost them. And then there was the promise to myself to play a board game with my seven-year-old daughter at least once a month. That was a New Year's resolution nearly 11 months ago. And I guess we've played a game once, maybe twice, in all that time. Well, I think some of us have been both on the receiving and the giving end of broken promises. And they build distrust. They build a sense of a cynicism, even. Politicians break promises. Nations break promises. Treaties are broken. But one of the wonderful features of God's covenant is this, that the com- column of promises kept is identical, or it will be eventually identical, with the column promises made. Within the broad expanse of God's providence, there is a special people that are his special care. And in order to assure them that they are his special care, he has bound himself to their care by means of a covenant. And so by his oath-sworn promises, and that's what a covenant is, it's an oath-sworn promise, God binds himself, and in providential terms, he limits himself, as it were, to perform certain actions that he has promised. From the moment at which he makes a covenant promise to his people, from that moment on, his dealings with them in providence are governed by that oath-sworn promise. His providence, you see, is hedged in by his, by his oath. Before the promise was made, there wasn't that constraint. But once the oath-sworn promise has been made, God has bound himself by what he has said. And his providential activity, it is therefore ordered in keeping with that covenant promise. Now to strengthen your assurance in these evil days, we are noting several features that characterize the overarching covenant of grace as well as the each expression along the way in the scriptures of this covenant. We noted so far five such features. God's covenant is everlasting, it is sure, it is gracious, it is ample, and it is remembered. Well, we come to a sixth feature, and we have all six of these in your notes if you happen to print them out. The sixth feature of this is that the covenant is well mediated. And here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, 
We begin with verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and lot man. The writer to the Hebrews often describes the old sacrifices and the old tabernacle and the temple and the priests and what they did. But he says we have now the true heavenly tabernacle or sanctuary and a heavenly priest, that is the Lord Jesus. And in verses 3 through 5, we learn that the priests that offered sacrifices under the old covenant, those were only shadowy pictures of what was to come. And then he comes to the reality in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. The new covenant is a better covenant, he says. It's established upon better promises. And this is so because it has been established by a better mediator. Now, what is a mediator? A mediator is somebody that mediates between two parties. He's a go-between. And this is uh, so because it has been established uh, by a better mediator that he will be, as it were, our go-between. He will be the go-between between man and God. Now, among men and women, a mediator brings two opposing parties together. And between man and God, there is this issue, the issue of sin. And there's a fundamental breach in our relationship. And it's only when the sin has been dealt with that God can receive us as the offender back into fellowship with him. Under the old covenant, at least in picture form, this is what it played out. The priest was that mediator. He offered, you see, a sacrifice for the removal of the sin that caused the breach. And the priests of old, they could only offer animals, and those animals never could truly take away sin. They could just picture what will come to pass ultimately when Jesus comes. They could only serve as shadows, as Hebrews puts it, of the reality that was to come. Christ is the true mediatorial priest who offers the perfect sacrifice in his death on the cross. And the sacrifice of the eternal high priest infinitely surpasses every other sacrifice. Now this morning, I want to point out, if time allows, five features of the mediator of the new covenant. The first of these five features is that the mediator is one who is the Lord's righteous servant. Please turn with me to the book of Isaiah and chapter 42. The mediator is the Lord's righteous servant. Now throughout the Old Testament, God establishes covenants with a righteous servant that represents the people with whom the covenant is made. Abraham is that person. You remember, for instance, God speaks to Abraham, makes a covenant with him, but it's in behalf of Abraham's seed. It's a people that Abraham represents. Later on, we come to uh, David. There was a covenant made with David and his descendants. And ultimately, it is Christ and all that are members with his kingdom. And just as Abraham and just as David were righteous servants that represented a people, Christ is the righteous servant that the Lord has called out to be 
our representative in his covenant with us. All these other covenants, they anticipate this covenant and with Christ and his people. And in this connection, we mustn't overlook those passages in which Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord. He is a servant. He's a righteous servant. And he is given as a covenant for the people. In Isaiah 42, notice with me verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Here Yahweh calls him my servant. Of all of his servants, this is the one that's most remarkable. He is, he says, my servant. And in a special sense, he is above all of the servants because he is the servant of Yahweh. And he has been called to a service that is so stupendous that no other servant can do this. Behold, Yahweh says, look, this is an amazing sight. Look, he says, look at this one. And then he tells us why the attention of everybody should be directed toward this servant. First of all, he says he is one whom the Yahweh upholds. Behold my servant whom I uphold, he says. And the word means to sustain or to hold fast. It refers to the divine help that God will give to his servant. And the fact that Yahweh personally upholds him in his stupendous work, it shows that God regards him with the deepest affection. And the second designation of honor concerning this servant is that he is called my elect one, or my chosen one. The servant's work is is such a work that no other person can can perform it. He who is to perform it must be chosen by God himself. And the third thing that's said about him here is that he is the one in whom my soul delights, God says. Yahweh delights in him with the fullness of his being. And immediately our minds go to what the Father said of his son at his baptism, and then again at his transfiguration. You remember how God said at the baptism, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then again at his transfiguration, the same exact words were used. And then in the next place in this passage, Isaiah 42, Yahweh says, I have put my spirit upon him. The Holy Spirit, with all of his divine force, with all of his supernatural power, he will equip this servant to perform this amazing task. And the Spirit will be put upon him. You remember how at the baptism, he descended upon Jesus like in the the form of a dove. And so this is what he says about his servant by way of introduction. And then in verses 2 through 4, we read further about his unique choice servant. Let's read those verses. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. And then after speaking these things about what the servant is like, he's not somebody that just runs roughshod over everybody. He is a tender servant. He, he sees the bruised reed, and he doesn't, he doesn't break it. He, he's that kind of a, a servant. 
And then in verses 5 and 6, Yahweh speaks directly to this choice servant. Let's read those verses. Thus says the God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the, and the spirit to those who walk on it. And here is what he says to the servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you, and notice these words, and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. A genuine selection has taken place. God has rejected all others. He has designated this choice servant for this stupendous task. And this choice isn't arbitrary. It was in righteousness. In verse 6, Yahweh says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. That's why we call him the righteous servant. The servant's mission is rooted and grounded in God's righteousness. And because the task at hand is so demanding, the Lord assures his choice servant, I will hold your hand. A beautiful, tender expression that stresses the fact that in this great mission, God will continually sustain his servant. And then he adds, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. And who is in view when he says, I will give you as a covenant to the people? Now, there are some who argue that the servant is to be a covenant to the Jews, but a light to the Gentiles. I was struck reading a commentary in Hebrews recently by somebody that I have high respect for, a person that's a dispensational in his views. And his conclusion was is that none of the covenants are made with any but the Jews. Even the new covenant is only made with the Jews. But in this passage, you will notice how he joins together a covenant of the people and a light to the Gentiles. And verse 5, it clearly refers to a people that are spread out all over the earth. And it seems like a strange interpretation that Christ will then be a covenant to Israel, but then a light to the Gentiles. And it's quite clear to me that the people include also the Gentiles. And the expression that God uses here is striking. The servant himself is the covenant. As E.J. Young says in his commentary, to say that the servant is a covenant is to say that all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in and have their root and origin in, and are dispensed by him. All the covenant is wrapped up in this one, in this servant. Now this is reiterated then by the Lord in chapter 49 and verse 8. And here, I want you to notice how he says this again. He says, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Christ himself is the center of all the blessings of the covenant of grace. To receive Christ is to receive all those covenant blessings. And without him, there are none of those covenant blessings. He is the channel through whom those blessings flow. Moses, you remember, was the mediator of the Old Covenant. And Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant. But he is more than the mediator of the Covenant. He is the Covenant. Isn't that amazing? 
And those to whom God sovereignly bestows the grace of salvation, they receive the servant himself. Now notice how we have similar ideas expressed in Isaiah chapter 55. You could flip over there a couple chapters. Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 3 and 4. There's an evangelistic appeal here. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed I have given him as a witness to the people. A leader and commander for the people. Now nothing accentuates the certainty and security of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, than to invest the assurance with the, sanctuary, with the sanctity of a, of a covenant. This guarantees, you see, that it will be kept, this promise. And nothing secures the covenant more than this. The Lord gives his righteous servant as that covenant. He gives Jesus to us. He is the covenant for the people. In Jeremiah 33, 16, the one by whom the covenant is secured, he is called the Lord, our righteousness. He is the righteous servant by whom the covenant is carried into effect. But now I want you to notice in the second place, and we're going to spend more time on this point than any others. The mediator is one who is also the son of David. Now the verses that we just read from Isaiah 55 speak of the sure mercies of David. And this is a reference to the covenant that God made with David. And here I'd like you to turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's not called a covenant in this particular chapter, but it is later on referred to as a covenant. And we're going to get to that passage in a moment. But... David is distressed over the fact that he's living in a house of cedar, but the Lord's dwelling place is still a tent, and so he wants to build a temple for the Lord. And through the prophet Nathan, the Lord assured David that his motives were good, but, he had, but that the Lord, he had been content to dwell in tent. He, he was with his wandering people like a wandering person, as it were, living in a tent. And instead, the Lord tells David, you want to build a house, and you're not going to be the one that's going to do it. Solomon's going to do it. But you're, you're, you, you can't build the house, but I'm going to build you a house. It's an amazing turnaround here. And then in verse 12 we read, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it's his son Solomon that's going to build the temple. Verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity I will chasten him with the rods of men. And with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now turn with me to Psalm 89. The hymn that we sang just a moment ago was taken from this psalm. And 
We sang it two sermons ago, so that would be about four weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever that is. And uh, in this psalm, which is written by Ethan the Ezraite, it begins by declaring the psalmist's intention of making known the Lord's faithfulness throughout all generations. And then for a particular example of that faithfulness, he reflects upon the promise that God had made to, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so we read in Psalm 89 and verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. You see how he's now reflecting on what was there. It's a covenant, even though it's not said that in 2 Samuel 7. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Of these verses, they identify two partakers of the Davidic covenant, David and his royal posterity. David, my servant, and then he says to David, and your seed, that posterity, the descendants. And the immediate fulfillment of the promise of an enduring house, it pertained to the royal descendants of David, to Solomon and to Solomon's son, Solomon's grandson, and on and on down through many generations. And then further on in this psalm, we come to verse 30. And again, the psalmist comes back around full circle to the covenant. He says, if his sons, that if Solomon's sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Now these words, they pertain particularly to Solomon and to the dynasty of the kings of Judah that ruled in Jerusalem until its destruction and until the Babylonian captivity. His sons will be chastened when they, when they sin, and he won't, yet he won't take the kingdom from them. As long as the kingdom of David and Judah remain, their royal heirs will rule over it. And so he says to confirm this promise, he says in verse 34, My covenant I will not break, nor alter my word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. So this is originally made with reference to David's son, Solomon, and his descendants. But ultimately, the ultimate heir is the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, the Lord says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And here in Psalm 89, there are promises that transcend anything that ever happened to Solomon and to his heirs that ruled in Jerusalem. It goes beyond the destruction of Jerusalem and the collapse of the dynasty of Judah. It's a promise that extends into eternity. And so we read in verse 27, Also I will make him my firstborn. Here we're obviously thinking about the Lord Jesus the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. 
His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. And again, he says in verse 34, my covenant I will not break. And he goes on to say, verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. His words envision the coming of Christ and his perpetual and his eternal reign. The dynasty that ruled in Jerusalem will come to an end. But in these words we read of a covenant assurance that the kingdom is going to endure forever. Of a throne that's going to be as the days of the sun. Now in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll just quote the words here, verses 6 and 7, they're familiar. We read this promise, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And one more passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 33. Just as the earthly dynasty in Judah was about to come to an end, as the Babylonian captivity was about to begin, Jeremiah's writing at the time when it's just before that captivity and also when it begins, just as that's about to take place, the Lord speaks of an enduring fulfillment again of the promise. Notice the timing of it. It's going to seem like, well, you promised this throne forever. And now we're being carted off to Babylon. How is this promise being a good, be kept now? And yet we read in verses 14 and following in this chapter where God answers this question. He says, the days are going to come, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing that I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David. A branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord our righteousness. And then in verse 17 we read. For thus says the Lord David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And then in verse 20 it says, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in the season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. So God assures his people that just as the son endures, so his covenant promise endures to David and to the with respect to the kingdom uh, lasting forever. But before the Messianic king is born, that is going to be the fulfillment of these promises, the royal line has to be preserved. Because Jesus has to be born in that royal line. And it's remarkable as we read through the books of Kings and Chronicles that there is a contrast that's continually being drawn between the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Because of the sin of David's son Solomon, God declared that he was going to tear away the kingdom from him and give it to his servant, to Jeroboam. And the, the implication is startling. 
the promise. He, must, he might have thought the promise was made that this dynasty would be forever. And right away you're going to rip it away from us. How's, how's this ever going to be fulfilled? And yet God doesn't forget his covenant with David. He says, even though this will take place, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David. And this is a refrain that's repeated again and again through the kings especially. In spite of all this, he keeps on saying, I'm not going to take it away because of what I said to David. And what I just quoted from 1 Kings eleven thirteen. So Solomon's son Rehoboam, he continues to reign over Judah. And subsequently, Rehoboam's son Abijam sins grievously. His kingdom needs to be chastened. And yet again, God says, 1 Kings 15, 4, For David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. And then after Abijam came, the godly kings of Asa and Jehoshaphat reigned. But then along came Jehoram, who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet we read, The Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he had promised to give a lamp to him through his son always. 2 Kings 8, 19. And still later, as the Assyrian Sennacherib besieges Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, the fortunes of the throne of David, the fortunes of the city of David, they rest upon this promise still. The promise made to David. And so through his messenger, the Lord announces, I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. 2 Kings 19.34 And then after, after Hezekiah comes Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings ever, burned children alive in order worshiping the idols, wickedness to, to the highest extreme, notorious for his idolatry. And his sins and those of the people, they were so outrageous that Jerusalem's doom is sealed. And yet prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, the dynasty of David, it had a remarkable record. From David's accession to the throne to around 1,000, and that was about around 1,000, to the fall of Jerusalem was over 400 years of one dynasty. Now, the average dynasty in Egypt during the period of its greatest stability was something like 100 years. In other words, it would be a father and a son and a grandson and so forth, and then it would be assassination. And so it would be a whole new dynasty that's from a different family. And this would happen, the best of them would be about 100 years. And David's dynasty, it contrasts not only with those dynasties, but especially with the dynasties of Israel. The northern kingdom managed only two dynasties of any significance. And even then, they were relatively short. There was a constant assassinations taking place. A constant turning over the dynasties. But in Judah, there was just one dynasty. And even after Jerusalem was taken captive, God still preserved the line of David in the most remarkable way for hundreds of years until the coming of the promised Messiah. And all of this took place with a view to the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promised to David. And so as we open the Gospel of Luke, we read of an angel coming to Mary. And he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, verses 30 to 33. And in that same chapter, we read Zacharias' prophecy at the birth of John, the forerunner of Messiah. And yet he speaks about what's being introduced by John. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You see how this was kept all through the years. And then after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended to the throne of God, to the throne of David in the reality. He sent the Holy Spirit upon the church. And when the people in Jerusalem were wondering about everything that they were seeing and hearing, as there were those cloven tongues of fire, as the different languages were being spoken, and the, the gospel was being spoken, uh, Peter stands up in the great crowd and he says this, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit upon his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And not only did Peter preach this, but Paul did the same. In Antioch and Pisidia, He says, we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Acts 13, 32 to 34. This is an astounding thread you see that runs through the Bible. And this astounding array of confirmation of God's covenant, this is a bulwark to us, dear people, against doubt and fear in these distressing days. When we see men and women on the television and it gets so grievous, we think certainly they're going to run out of energy doing all this these days. We see them burning and we see them pillaging all over the country just yesterday again. We see these things. And yet we can be assured that the son of of David, he is the mediator of the covenant. And that all of God's promises to David will still be fulfilled. And when the coronavirus seems to be gaining strength in many places, we can be assured that God has not forgotten his promises made to David and to his only begotten son. And when lies seem to be flooding the airwaves and the internet, and it seems like people are being deceived by those lies, we cannot understand how they can be so gullible, and yet those that are liars believe lies. We can know this, that the mediator of the covenant, he is none other than the son of David, 
And his throne will endure forever. And there's nothing that can take place in the elections that are to come. Nothing that can take place in the years and the decades to come that could take this king off of his throne. Or that in any way can invalidate this covenant that has been made with God's son, even the son of David. The mediator is the son of David. But now, in the third place, and more briefly, the mediator is one who is the God-man. The angel that spoke to Mary not only told her that her son would be given the throne of his father David, but also that he would be the son of the highest, Luke 1.32. The implication is plain. He will be a man because he's going to come from the womb of Mary. And yet he's going to be the son of the highest. And again, when he was born, even though he was born in humility in the city of David, in the most humble circumstances, he was born in a manger. The cry of a little baby pierced the air that night. He was a true human being. Babies cried, Jesus as a baby cried. And yet on that night, the angel announced to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A little baby. He's Christ the Lord. And then later on we read in Luke chapter 20. when They're trying to trick Jesus. Jesus answers them with a riddle. He says in Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 41. He said to them, how can they say that David is the son of David? Or Christ is the son of David. Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him the Lord. How is he then his son? And then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware. And he warned them of the, the teaching of the, of the scribes. And then again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's God, he's man, the mediator is. On one hand, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And yet on the other hand, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He is God, yet he takes human flesh, true human flesh, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we read in Philippians 2. He's the God-man. This is our mediator. As the prince of the Puritan theologians put it, John Owen, he suffered not as God, but he suffered who was God. What a mystery. And yet it's true. He's the God-man. And the providence of God is seen supremely and uniquely, therefore, in the incarnation and the ministry and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is the Christ of whom the prophets spoke. God is in the person of his Son, as it were, contracted, as Charles Wesley puts it. He's contracted into the human form of a servant. He lives within the confines of history. And this has tremendous ramifications for the doctrine of providence. God the Son, he doesn't take human flesh just so he could be boss 
and so he could tell people what to do. He takes human flesh in order that he might subject himself to bodily weakness, that he might suffer by being surrounded by human wickedness. Day and night they were hounding him, trying to trip him up. Day and night they were trying to get him killed. The long-expected, long-promised Messiah, he comes in in a form, therefore, that surprises and offends. He submits himself not only to bodily weakness and pain, but to indignity and to evil. And it's exceedingly helpful for us to remember that the mediator of the covenant, he is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. This Lord Jesus, the mediator of the covenant, he was surrounded by doing by those that sought to contradict everything that he said. He, he didn't have a moment where he could rest and just kind of relax his mind. He had to constantly be coming back to them. He carried our sorrows. He shook hands, as one writer put it, with our grief. And he made affliction his bosom companion. If you've been watching the news at all, I don't have to go into details to convince you that in recent days, hell has been unleashed with all the kind of vitriol and savagery the likes of which we've seldom seen. And it's right that we have a deep concern for social justice. It's right that measures be taken to be sure that those who are most vulnerable will not be subjected to oppression. That's right. Jesus came to deliver the the oppressed. And so we understand that. The wicked men have cultivated a unique skill in taking a genuine concern and hijacking it with their own evil agenda. And we are surrounded more and more, you see, with expressions of this evil. And like Lot, our souls are vexed by the evildoers that are around us. And we wonder sometimes if we can take it anymore. And at such times, it's good to remember that the one who rules providence, he himself was surrounded by the contradiction of sinners. He knows the distress that you feel in your soul as you see these things. And blessed be God, he not only enters into our distress, but he's also capable of ruling in the midst of his enemies. And at times like these, it's a blessed thing to remember that providence is governed by God's covenant. And the mediator of that covenant is the God-man. Now in the fourth place, notice with me that the mediator is one who sealed the covenant with his own blood. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we hear the words of our covenant mediator. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And whenever we hear these words, we hear words that help us understand that the covenant is a designation of the sum total of blessing and grace that God has offered to our souls. Jesus is our covenant representative. And as our covenant representative, he becomes our surety. A surety is somebody that stands in the place of another and takes their obligations Hebrews 7.22 tells us that Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. And as our surety, or as our guarantee, he has pledged himself to stand in our stead and to bear the full consequences of our sin. And all this, it required the shedding of his own blood. And as ancient covenants were often ratified with the shedding of blood, the blood of a sacrificial victim, 
Jesus becomes that victim. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 through 8, we read of the offerings that were offered at the base of Mount Sinai when the Mosaic Covenant was, was ratified. There were 12 pillar altars, 12 offerings that were offered in behalf of each tribe of Israel. And Moses took the blood from those sacrifices and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you with all these words. He ratifies the covenant with the sprinkling of blood, you see. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 to 20, this incident is repeated. And these very words are quoted. And even so, the mediator, he has sealed the covenant with his own blood. Therefore, according to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24, when the church gathers, it gathers with the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Dear people, this gives you and me great assurance. And for this reason, the writer to the Hebrews, he closes with that wonderful benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. You ever feel like you're surrounded by so much evil in these days? You're weighed down also with the sinfulness of your own heart. You ever wonder, well, it just seems like I'm going backward. I'm not making progress these days. I'm not growing. Does it ever seem that your growth is painfully slow at best? And here, here is your assurance from your covenant-keeping God. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, it's been sealed with blood. Through that blood, God says, he will make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. God's going to finish the work that he began in you. The covenant guarantees it. But then in the fifth and final place, the mediator is one who is our mediatorial king. In the sections of Psalm 89 that we looked at earlier, in connection with the Davidic covenant, these same sections guarantee that our Savior is going to reign forever on his mediatorial throne. And even now, he is God's firstborn. He is called the highest of the kings of the earth. God declares that his throne will be as the sun before him. It's a throne that will be established forever. And as 1 Timothy 6.15 puts it, he is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And as a reward for his sufferings, he has been highly exalted. He's been seated upon a throne. He's been given a name that's above every name. The vast universe is governed by this one that's seated upon that throne. The angels are ever at his beck and his call. At his command, they confound his foes and deliver his people. By him, kings reign and princes decree justice. By him, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. And so, dear people, if convulsions shake heaven and earth, if empires crumble, if nations are ripped asunder, 
if rivers of blood flow like they're flowing in our cities these days, if pestilence slays its thousands, if economic systems are shaken to the core, if there's upon earth distress of nations with perplexity and the sea and the waves whereof roaring and men's hearts failing them for fear, if all this takes place, we can still sing, O Zion, your God reigns. And on the other hand, to those of us who are his people, he is the Prince of Peace. To us, he is as the light of the morning where the sun arises, even a morning with clouds, as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by a clear shining after rain. And so blessed be God, the mediator of the covenant is none other than our dear Lord Jesus, one who has shed his own blood for us. This is the key. Well, I've given in your notes uh, three directives. I'm only going to comment on two before we close. We've been trying to apply this as we've preached along. But I want to say a couple things in conclusion. First of all, let us learn to entrust our concerns into the hands of our covenant mediator. And when we see our universities, and when we see the other main shapers of culture taken over by those whose thinking is completely godless. You see, it's the culture formers, you see, that really change the nation, not so much who gets voted in. It's the culture changers. And when we see it completely godless, it seems, these days, other viewpoints can't be represented, that they're fired. And we see this happening. And we can easily begin to fear for the church. A recent poll uh, indicated that 62% of the people being polled say that they're afraid to share their views with other people. They don't want to be canceled. They want to lose their job. And this, this causes fear, you see. Even Luther, he had moments when he trembled. He once said, I had utterly despaired had not Christ been head of the church. And when somebody told Barameus, that there were some people that were lying in wait for his life. This was his answer. What? Is God in the world for nothing? And so when the church seems threatened, we can ask, is the mediator, the mediator king, is he present in his church? Is he present in the world for nothing? Is he not going to do his purpose and achieve his, his plan? One of the things that contributed to making Caesar's soldiers invincible in battle was their seeing their leader, Caesar himself, always taking share in their danger, never seeking exemption from the labor, from the fatigue, and from the danger. And we have an even greater example in our Savior when we consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And when we see him surrounded by those who wanted to take his life and eventually did just that. And we can be assured that as he is our representative, that he will prevail. And so he will prevail in these great days of uncertainty. But also, he will prevail in your heart and your life. Now, perhaps some of you, it's not so much the, the, the politics and all the stuff that you worry about that most. But you're, you're mostly afraid as, as, a, as a believer that maybe you're not going to hold out. 
Maybe you're going to be the one of the ones that's a temporary believer that Jesus describes in his parable. The thousands of God's saints that are unnecessarily troubled by this. And remember this, that what God begins, he finishes it. He doesn't start things he doesn't finish. He always completes his own work. If he's begun a work of salvation in you, he will carry it out to the end. And yet you see, thousands say that they're, they're distressed. Maybe I'll be so tempted I might fall. Maybe I'll deny the faith. But dear ones, at such times when you're afraid for your own soul, don't say, I'll be able to hang out. I'm strong. I have determined that I'm going to persevere. Don't trust in yourself. Trust not in that broken reed, but trust in this one, the son of David, this one, the servant of the Lord, the righteous servant, this God-man that we've spoken about, this mediator of the covenant. He's the one in whom you have security. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, I remember a miner that had been a sad, drunken man and a great blasphemer, but he was converted among the Methodists. And a right earnest man he was. But he seemed to have been a man of strong passions. And on one occasion he was praying. It seems this was in a church prayer meeting. He prayed that sooner than he might ever go back to his old sins. If God foresaw that he would not be able to bear up under them. That he would take him to heaven at once. And while he was praying that very prayer. He died. God took him. Because God wasn't going to let him fall. He determined that he was going to preserve his child, his child that was weak, that couldn't trust in himself, but trusted in God, trusted in the Redeemer. You do the same thing. And then finally, one more word. Let's, let's learn to respond in faithfulness to the one who's been so faithful to us. According to the terms of God's covenant, in his providence, God does all things for you. And will you not be faithful in return? If God's providence is at work every moment in your behalf, and he's sent a redeemer, a mediator, and he's given you a covenant, why would you be idle? Why would you be unfaithful? If he waters his vineyard every moment, as we saw earlier, why won't you, his vineyard, yield fruit for his glory? And with David, should we not ask, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? If God is faithful to remember and to fulfill every one of his covenant promises, shall we not also seek to remain faithful unto him? And if you're here as an unconverted person, I would say to you that this covenant keeper, this mediator of the covenant, he is offered to you. You say, well, I don't know if I'm in the covenant, so I don't know if I'll ever be saved. Don't worry about that, my friend. He gives you an invitation. And he says, ho, everybody that thirsts. He's he's like a salesperson out on the street corners. Huckstering people. Come buy this, he says. Come to the waters. And and I'm going to talk to you that don't have any money, he says. Come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without price. Mm -hmm. Salvation is full and free to those that come to Jesus. Confessing their sins. Asking for, for that salvation. He says, I'm going to give it to you. Why are you going to spend your money on that which is not bread? Incline your ear, he says. Listen to me. Your soul's going to live. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. 
I'll give you, he says, he's speaking to sinners, I'll give you the sure mercies of David. You could take that promise to the bank, my friend. You could take it to the Lord himself, and he will save you. He will deliver you from your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this high doctrine that we've been considering today, this wonderful doctrine. We bless you, Lord, for the mediator of the covenant. We pray that you would teach us to be grateful for that one whom you've provided for us. How we thank you that we live in the days in which these things have been revealed more plainly than they were thousands of years ago. And how we bless you, Lord Jesus, that you became the surety of this covenant. You took our debt, you took our sins, and you bore them in our behalf. And how we do thank you, Lord Jesus, that as the mediator of the new covenant, that you now rule and reign. You are now, as the son of David, on your throne. And you will accomplish your purposes throughout the earth. You will accomplish your purposes in and through us in this place. Oh, Lord God, will you not show forth your mighty power in these days? Will you not fix our gaze upon this one who has been faithful and who will see the work to an end? Will you not cause us to be more believing and not to tremble, not to doubt? Help us, Lord, to follow you wherever you go. And we pray, too, that some soul in this room today that doesn't have the Lord Jesus as a covenant surety, that that person would take of this invitation, this offer that's free, an offer to, to sinners not to do anything but just simply trust in the Lord Jesus. May such ones believe in him, and may they receive, therefore, the sure mercies of David. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.